broken that we have to live with these fears. Uh, ESPN recently did a documentary on uh, something uh, during this time that ties with sports. They were tracking the World Series at that time and the fact that uh, George Bush, the president, wanted to throw the symbolic first pitch. You might remember that because the World Series was being played in New York and in Arizona. They would swap back. So the first two games were in Arizona. The third game was the first in New York. And George Bush says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to throw out the first pitch. So for two days before, they shut down the stadium and they had to uh, run all the security dogs and check it and check it again and check it three times. And then they posted snipers in the buildings around the stadium, secret servant agents. And then they uh, gave George Bush a bulletproof vest to wear inside of his coat, Yankee jacket. And then when it was time, he jogged out onto the field, gave it to big thumbs up, and he steps on the mound. And if you know baseball, this is a moment you can really easily mess up. In fact, most people who throw these Symbolic first pitches will bounce them, or 50 Cent even worse when he tried it. So it's kind of a moment like, oh, don't mess this up. And uh, George Bush, man, he rears back and he nails it. Perfect strike. And the whole audience goes bananas. Everybody goes crazy in New York. In fact, Billy Crystal, a lifelong Democrat, someone who doesn't favor the politics of George Bush, said, you know, at that moment, all politics were set aside because it was such a moment of hope in the middle of all the adversity. And you might be looking for that today in your life because this world is messed up and in your own personal life. Maybe it's a relationship, right? Maybe you have some personal brokenness there. What do you do when your happily ever after fails? We've been poisoned by all these fairy tales growing up. A relationship breaks. Maybe your health is sliding into depths of dysfunction, hitherto unknown. That happens when you age. You have to deal with it. Maybe you're discerning about culture. Your concerns about today are more macro, right? You're noticing trends and you don't like them. The fact that the Me Too movement exists and the Church Too movement exists tells us that we have problems of great depth in our culture. Maybe a, a, a superstar Christian you've followed has fallen, and that's shaken your world. You've noticed the brokenness in which we live. You must admit that sometimes when you look around, you wonder why God is staying silent. It seems like he's hiding. In the midst of all of these things, we look for hope. And enter here the book of Esther. All right, This is why Esther has import to us today. The culture she was in has a lot of similarities to what we're living in right now. Violence is near. It seems hopelessly gone awry. Debauchery is championed. Abuse is rampant. Minorities are being belittled. God's own people are in danger of being eliminated in Esther. And if you're not careful, you can read the book and miss what God is doing. If you do carefully read it, however, you can gain a lot of hope as the story unfolds. You can learn that hope still reigns in the darkest of hours. 
the light of Christ will break through. Because God is pushing all of history to the great triumph of Jesus himself, the coming Messiah. That's the message of Esther. I want to jump into it today in chapter 1. There's a lot of different ways you can begin a book study. I could outline the book for you, put the major themes and the dates and the author and all that stuff, and we're not going to do that right now. Take too long. What I would like to do is just go through the first chapter and then point out some things as we go. All right, here we go. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Esther. It's funny right from the start, see if you can catch this. Verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India, as opposed to the Ahasuerus who lives two doors down from you, right? This guy's name is so crazy. He was the king, all right? And he reigned from India. Now that's ancient India. It's now Pakistan. To Ethiopia, which is modern-day Sudan. Over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, that's the modern Sush, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, that would be about 483 B.C., he gives a feast for all of his officials and servants and the army of Persia and Media and all the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, all right? So if we stop here, we think about who may have written this, like most Old Testament books, we're not certain because there's no record of who wrote it down. But the details are so good and accurate that we know someone had to live close to that time. We don't know the author, but we do know where it fits within the Bible story, okay? So put your Bible history hat on and think. You might remember in about 930 B.C., we have two kingdoms. God's people go this way. They split. You have Israel in 930, and you have Judah. You got two kingdoms, right? And they live like that. And then about 600, 605 to 580s, they are overthrown, both kingdoms, and they're sent into the exile period. The Babylonian army has reigned there, taking over the whole world. You remember Daniel, his contemporaries, King Nebuchadnezzar, all those guys were in the Babylonian period. After that, those guys were overtaken by the Persians. The Persians then ruled the whole world, and it's this Persian period in which Esther takes place. All right? 483, three years after the new king has taken his throne, it's in the capital city of Persia. Esther and her cousin Mordecai, key figures in the book as we go along, were Jews that had not gone back to Jerusalem after the exile. Some Jews were going back. Esther and her family had not, so she was here. And what we see gathering here is a military display of might as the Persians are fixing to invade the Greek Empire. So he's gathering all his people there to impress them. That's not going to go well, by the way, but he doesn't know it yet. Uh, and he, here he is. This is the king. How is he going to impress all of these officials, all of these generals from throughout the empire to convince them he needs to invade Greek. How's he going to do it? Well, we read on and we see verse 4. The king shows the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days. How many days? 180. This guy throws a 
party to end all parties for six months. Parents, that's a lot of track out. It's a lot of PTO time. Six months of partying in the capital of the city. Verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, that's the capital there, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Evidently, after six months, the people from far territories went home. The officials, the generals, started to scatter a little bit, and he's left with the people in his hometown, and he does something unusual. He says, everybody can come into the palace, great and small, blacksmiths, tanners, wheelwrights, common men, you can come to the royal festival. Wasn't a normal thing, but that's what the king does here in these verses. Anyone is invited to see his self-proclaimed godlike splendor. He's wanting attention here. Verse 6, he starts to describe his royal palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement, porphyry marble, mother of pearl and precious stone. Extravagant. I'm from Tennessee, so it sounds like Graceland to me. You're old enough to know who Elvis is. Man, I remember Elvis in Memphis. He had a 15-foot-long couch. And in one room, he wanted to watch all that was on TV. Now, granted, there was only three channels back then, right? But he put three TVs on his wall so he could watch everything that was on TV at the same time. Extravagant. But even Elvis did not have couches of gold. Imagine how opulent this guy has uh, made his living arrangement. When the Greeks later invaded this territory, they actually found these golden couches. And they're like, what in the world is this? No wonder his army is weak. <laughs> he spent all his money on his couch. <laughs> but there he is. You're getting the picture here. More about the party. Verse 7. Drinks were served in gold vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine. Note that the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Lots of wine flowing here. And the drinking was according to this edict. This is different. He says, there's no compulsion for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Here's how it usually worked. When the king was drinking, you had to drink. That's how these parties work in royal Persia. But he makes an exception here. And it's a good thing, because you're going to see later that the king gets actual, absolutely just hammered, sloppy, drunk, and chaos ensues from it. Now in verse 9, one of the main characters of chapter 1 emerges for the first time. It's the queen of the empire. Read with me. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace, that belonged to King Hatsueras. I want to stop here and pause. Who are these women of the palace that she's giving a separate party for? Well, the king had lots of female servants, and he probably also had a harem, women that were kept simply for his pleasure. Now, we want to be really clear here. The great uh, way to interpret the Bible that can help you as you're reading through Esther Sometimes when the Bible 
writes something, a Bible author writes something, they're writing it as a prescription, right? Like, you should do this. For instance, Paul, in Ephesians 4.32, he writes, be kind and compassionate to one another. Paul means you should do this. But at other times, the Bible authors will write something and they're just describing a scene. All right, that's what's going on here with Queen Vashti and this harem of women for the king. He's not prescribing it. In fact, he describes it in such a way that you, the reader, should immediately perk up and say, man, that's broken. What is this king doing with all these women he's keeping? That, that's not right. That's not God's way. That's dark. And it may even reflect the sexual immorality that goes on in our culture today. And then we continue here. The queen is having her own party. Maybe because of the enormous crowd, we're not told. But this brings us to the end of the feast. It's been six months. One commentator said this, on the, on the seventh day of this final feast, things just get weird. And he's right. This is what happens. Look in verse 10. I'm going to skip some of this. Uh, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's key, when his, that means he's drunk. When he's drunk, he commands his eunuchs. You know what eunuchs are? These are males who have been adapted so they can no longer be with women in a special way. Thus, they can be trusted to be messengers to go from the men to the women. So he gathers these guys together and he says, I've got an announcement to make. Verse 11. Bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. Now, Understand, this is the context where the king has supreme power, but even in this context, his request was bizarrely debased. Okay, from what we know about history and the Persian culture, he wasn't bringing the queen forward in an affirming way, all right? He was making a big deal of her beauty because she was lovely to look, look at. It was an objectifying way. He could have, for instance, asked her to come in wearing only her crown. Or it could have been even worse than that that he had in mind. You're supposed to read this, and because he's sloppy drunk, smell the ill intentions of the king. And again, this is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We never know exactly what his intentions were because of verse 12. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. I say good for her, right? Preserve your honor, preserve your dignity, and protect yourself from this drunken creep of a king. She doesn't come. I don't care if he's king or not. I'm not coming. And this sets in motion the wrath of the king. He's not used to not getting his way. He blows up. He's enraged. Anger burns within his heart and it turns the whole story of the book. And this brings us to one of the lessons of the book. Jesus is a much better king. All right? You're supposed to see this king. Here's a guy 
who actually had everything you dream of having. Wealth, check. Power, check. His love life, exactly the way he wanted it. Even though it was the base, it was the way he wanted it, right? Check. He achieved all he wanted, and yet he couldn't even rule in his own house correctly. Jesus is better. You're supposed to read this and think, even if I had everything I wanted, it would not be as good as the rule of Christ. Jesus says, I want to be your Lord. I know what's best for you. Follow my commandments, not your own, and you will be fulfilled. You'll not be a raving, angry, abusive king like this guy. You'll be peaceful. You'll be satisfied. You'll have my joy. Jesus is the better king. Back to the story. As the king becomes more and more enraged, he seeks the counsel of his so-called wise guys. But these guys actually end up looking like fools, okay? Verse 15. This is his reaction. Imagine this. He's just called his queen to come to his drunken party, and she has said no, and his reaction is, isn't there some law against this? He's delusional. He says, well, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Verse 16. Here is where some enterprising man steps forward. His name is Mamuken. He's a civil servant or lawyer of the king. The king asks a question about the law, so this guy... He's going to take a shot. Shooter's going to shoot, and look what he says here, verse 16. This guy said in the presence of the king and all the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of the king. You see that molehill? He's turning into mountain. 17. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, well, the king commanded the queen to be brought before him, and she didn't come. Verse 18, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, being all the dudes in the kingdom. And there will be contempt and wrath aplenty. So if you thought the king was a louse, this guy is even sleazier, right? He's wanting to make much more out of this than it should be. In the middle of the king's fury, this guy is thinking, how can I strike a blow for chauvinism and abuse that will be heard throughout the whole kingdom? He's broken. He expressed the grave concern that all Persian women might get uppity and high-minded and disagree with their husbands. This guy exemplifies the male chauvinist abusive type, but the, he's trying to codify it. He's trying to multiply it, taking the brokenness of the king and applying it throughout the land that's dark. And it should remind you some of the oppression that still goes on for women today 
in our culture. This guy is trying to legalize his domestic power grab. Verse 19, here's his suggestion. He's going to fix this problem. If it please the king, you almost picture this guy. He's in the corner, right? He's doing, yeah. He's got this evil scheme that he's been waiting to make uh, a law. And here he says, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from the king. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before the king. So she's banished. And... Let the king give her royal position to another who is better. By better, he means better looking. That's his worldview, right? So when the decree was made by the king, is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast. And here's the substance of his great new law. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. We know what this guy means by honor. He says jump, she says how high. This is a broken view of how relationships between men and women should be. And not surprisingly, verse 21, what does this boys club think about this? The king looks around and he's like, hey, it's a pretty good idea. And all of his buddies are like, yeah, it sounds great. 21 says, this advice pleased the king and the princess. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the provinces, to every province in its own script, so they could not say they misread it. To every people in his own language, that every man be master in his own household. This, my friends, is the setup in the story for Esther to become an influential queen. It's a bizarre way to become a queen. That's what the Lord has given us. Now, what I want to do here is now draw back from the story, looking at the rest of the Bible and looking around us today and see what God would have us make of this first chapter of uh, Esther. Here's the first point. I think we are to note that humanity is broken, but hope still reigns. Okay, that'll be the echo throughout the book. Humanity is broken. You're supposed to see the king. You're supposed to see this party. You're supposed to see his lawyer advisor as being examples of the way it should not be. It needs fixing. Three ways in particular. First, materialism materialism. The king delighted in displaying all of his material wealth to his people. Right? One author said his lifestyle was Kanye worthy. Certainly extravagant. And we all feel that pull, right? The pull of better clothes, bigger homes, cooler cars, better vacations. Sometimes you'll be online and you don't want to look at it, but you end up looking at your friend's latest remodel of their home. You're like, ah, I would like that done in my house. We crave material things. And we start them young. This week on Thursday, my five-year-old tells me, as, as five-year-olds who just learned how to make sentences would say, 
this is the greatest day of my entire life. I was like, all right, what happened? Well, turns out one of his little friends was very nice to him that day. And I'm thinking, oh, that's great. Somebody so nice to him that it's the best day of his life. And I said, is that why it's so good? And he's, no, no. He gave me a Pokemon card. That's why it was the best day. I got a Pokemon card. I was like, oh, man, you're starting young. You craze material things. And here's the deal. All of these many creations that we crave and gather and collect, dare I say worship, are not going to satisfy us. Our hearts are designed to be satisfied, but they're satisfied in the new creation realm of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king of the new creation that's already started. You're newly created. You're not what you used to be. And Jesus is here to satisfy you. And in the future, in a material sense, the Bible says you will inherit the physical, material, new heavens and new earth. You are designed to be satisfied one day in the realm of Christ. But you will not be satisfied in these many creation type of ways. It's almost like I went out to eat the other night. My wife and I had our 18th anniversary. Yeah, it's pretty good. They're clapping for you, believe me. Uh, but we go out, and I wanted to eat some steak. So we go to a steakhouse, and man, sometimes, you ever been to a steakhouse? This place turned out not to be like this, but maybe you've been to a steakhouse when the bread that they serve is so good that I'm like, you know, it's supposed to be the appetizer, right? I remember my dad told me when I was a teenager, he's like, don't fill up on bread because everybody's stomach's only got a limited amount. If you fill it up with bread, you'll miss the meat. And that's why you've come to a steakhouse in the first place. Esther illustrates this. Don't miss the meat. Don't miss who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to have in Jesus Christ by settling for these little appetizers. Material things are supposed to be a glimpse of the glory of God to come. They're not supposed to be the treasure of your heart. Jesus Christ in the kingdom is supposed to be the treasure. So it is broken that our material world is lacking the ability to satisfy us, yet it says that it will. That's broken. But hope remains that Christ has made provision to satisfy you. Let's trust in Him. Secondly, drunkenness. Earlier, we noted in the text, a king was merry with wine. That's ancient Bible talk for being hammered, okay? When he made the decision to shame his wife, he was way beyond responsible drinking. He was plastered. And this vice still has a strong draw today from college campuses to adult social gatherings to weekends. It's nighttime, you're on the couch. There is the allure of drunkenness. Now, why is God against this? What's the harm? Especially if I'm by myself, what's the harm? Well, interestingly enough, there's two places in the New Testament where God will outline through Paul that drunkenness in some way 
results in a lack of communion with God. Let me show you what I mean. Ephesians 5, for instance, 18. Remember when Paul says this? Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, right? So sobriety is in line with being filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness is aligned with what? Not being filled with the Spirit. He doesn't explain it fully, but certainly you can see there is a disconnect between you and the Holy Spirit when you are drunk. Same thing, Romans 13, verses 13 through 14. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in quarreling, jealousy, and other things. Then he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here, sobriety is linked with the second member of the Trinity. We've already had the Spirit. Here, sobriety is linked with putting on the Son. Drunkenness would seem to be putting off Jesus Christ. What's Paul talking about? Well, one thing he's talking about, he's warning us that this is a problem with identity. This is an identity problem that God takes very seriously that happens when you get drunk. You get drunk, you can become another person, right? You can become more fun, the fun guy. You're funnier all of a sudden. You're more bold. You're risky. You're an extrovert. I'm never an extrovert, but when I get drunk, I'm an extrovert. It changes who you are. It allows the guy who fails a test to say, ah, it was just the hangover. It wasn't really me. It allows the girl who made a mistake and slept with a guy in a one-night stand. She could say, ah, I was, I was just wasted and avoid the tag of being easy. Drunkenness takes you out of communion with Christ in some way. You're no longer basking in your identity as a child of God. You're saying Jesus is not enough for me. I need to be satisfied by something else. And it's broken. Broken. It's rampant in our world. Esther wants you to know, the book is saying to you, though our broken world might lead us to want to escape, there is hope that Christ can be your identity. If Christ is your identity, you will want to serve Him. You will be at peace with who you are. You don't have to become another person. You can be marked by joyfulness in Jesus without chasing after the false joyfulness of drunkenness. You know, I don't know if you ever had this experience, but uh, I once had, a, I've had the experience before of somebody I actually know becoming nationally famous, right? The guy I knew in high school, I remember when I saw him in a movie with George Clooney and John Travolta, and I was like, man, this is a guy I used to give noogies to, man. Now he's on the big screen. I'm so happy for that guy. But last year, the opposite happened. Tragically, my wife and I watched as an old friend of ours from seminary was thrust into the national media and she became famous as an ignored victim of sexual abuse. Esther 
goes there. Esther is going to teach us about the brokenness of misogyny. Okay, by this I mean an ingrained contempt or prejudice against women that results in their poor treatment. Vashti's situation is supposed to scream to you, injustice! And that's an echo that you still hear in our culture today. Unfortunately, it's broken. Now later in the book, quite famously, maybe the most famous line in the book, chapter 4, Mordecai is going to go to Esther and he's going to urge her not to keep silent at such a time as this. And for Christian men and the men of TCC, we are not to keep silent in the face of national misogyny. Instead, we must affirm women as equal image bearers of God. Because many don't. We must affirm that they are co-heirs of the kingdom of Christ, that they are gifted by the Spirit, crucial to the work of the church and to God's ultimate plan of salvation. That's our role. Scream it from the rooftops. Pastor Eric Schumacher compiled 21 points in the Bible where women hold the story of salvation afloat, where men do not. I'm gonna, not going to mention all of those right now, but I want to mention some of them because it paints the picture of how God has a high view of women. Listen to this. From Genesis 2. A woman's absence is the first thing declared not good in creation. Right? Her absence is what makes creation not good. Genesis 3. A woman will give birth to the serpent-crushing seed the Messiah. Something I learned from Genesis 16. A woman is the first and only character in the Old Testament to confer a name on God. That's Hagar. She claims and names God the God of seeing. It's very appropriate in light of the injustice that's going on. She can say God is the God of seeing. Women, over and over again, act bravely at decisive moments in the Bible to preserve the endangered line of the Messiah, often in the midst of vulnerability and oppression. Not just Esther that we'll read about in our book, but Ruth and Rahab, the Hebrew midwives, Tamar, on and on again. The women carry the story forward. It's a woman and her child in utero who are the first recorded people to recognize that the Messiah has come. That's Elizabeth. A woman is the first to expect and request a miraculous sign from the Messiah. That's Mary and John. Over and over again. Only women, this is a good one, only women are said to give general regular financial provision to Jesus and the twelve. Here's another one. Did you know no woman is ever recorded as acting against Jesus in the Bible? Jesus' enemies that are recorded are men. Women were the last to stay with Jesus at the cross with the exception of one disciple, that's John. Women being mistreated and overlooked is the impetus for appointing the first deacons in Acts. And finally, it's a woman's voice which is last to be quoted in the Bible 
But John writes, the spirit and the bride say, come. The bride gets the last word. Now, what does all this teach us? Well, three things at least. God often speaks about women in the scriptures. We know these stories because the Holy Spirit has come down and said, write these stories. We follow God's pattern when we hear and we respond to women's stories today. Secondly, stories of misogyny and abuse matter and they must be told. To end misogyny and honor God and the dignity of women, that's the opposite of what the king did. Responding to negative stories alone is insufficient. We must affirm the positive stories and contribution of women, not only as wise mothers and daughters, but also as image bearers of our living God. We have to see, we have to hear, we have to tell about women just as God does in the Bible. And finally, God deeply, deeply values women. He gave them such a crucial point in the Bible story. How much more so, men, are we to value women, especially in the face of all of the abuse that we hear about in our culture. So even though our world and our culture is broken, men included, Christian men included, we're broken. Still, we can have hope that God cares for and is with women holding up their dignity all the way to the kingdom where Christ will reign. Now we've seen how humanity is broken, but hope still reigns in Jesus. I want to make one other point, and it's this. Humanity is broken, hope still reigns in Jesus, but God writes the script, okay? This is what you should learn from Esther. God is writing the script of your life, just like he is of Esther's life. You may have noticed when I read through chapter 1 in the text, I never read about the character of God. God is not mentioned in chapter 1. And in fact, in all 167 verses of the book, you won't find the name of God or Lord or Yahweh, anything like that. It's unique as an Old Testament book in that it doesn't mention God. And you might think, why in the world? What kind of Bible author writes a whole book and doesn't put God's name in there? Isn't he the star? Well, think for a minute. Think about the Exodus story. You know that with Moses, right? In that story, God shows up all the time. And he does it in a fantastic way with signs and wonders, turns sticks into snakes, brings a plague of frogs on the whole land. He parts the sea like it's nothing so he can deliver his people. And what's the point? God is here and he's powerful and he's on display in a mighty way. Esther's different. Esther's more delicate. It's a more subtle book. It's still going to show God as a powerful rescuer, but it does it in a different way. In Esther, God is seen as the scriptwriter. Right? When you go home and you watch a TV show on Netflix or a movie, you're not going to actually see the writer unless it's some clip at the end where the actors are talking and the writer shows up. But normally, in a movie, you don't even see the writer. But you see everything the writer wants you to see, right? He has written it out, and every action that you see is according to the writer's pen. Here, God is seen as the great script 
writer. And how you see it is all of these God moments that come up in the text that someone might call coincidence, right? But with a Christian worldview, you're like, wait, 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 that's not random chance. That crazy thing that happened was written by God to drive toward the rescue of his people. And we say this all the time in our everyday life. Here's a for instance. Last week, I went to a football game with my son. And though they usually win on this day, they didn't. We got beat by multiple touchdowns, just like Carolina in Super Bowl 50. Eh? <laughs> I went there. Uh, but it was, it was a beatdown we lost, okay? And after the game, I'm coaching still. Game's over, but I'm still coaching my son. We walk to my car. It's blazing hot. We're 30 minutes away from my house. And I begin to take all of his pads off, which takes a while in football. Gives me a lot of chance to keep coaching him, keep coaching. I take his pads, open the trunk of the car, throw the pads in there along with my keys, and shut the hood. (laughs) And I'm still coaching. (laughs) After a while, I remember that I did something that I have never done before after a football game. I've uh, made it so I can't get home. So, normally, I would have called AAA, right? It's going to take them an hour. I'll be out in the sun, but that's what you got to do. So, as I, I actually have my phone in my hand, and I'm on hold forever, as is the normal pattern of AAA. And I see a friend over here, and they're with the whole family. And it's one of those friends that you know the name of, but you don't really hang out with them. You know, you don't ever do anything with them, but they're, they're friends because you all are at the same, you're at the same spot, right? So I know them because they're always at the football game. So I'm like, hey, and they're like, hey, are you in trouble? And I said, well, my keys are in my car. And they said, we're going to take you home. So i never been anywhere with this friend, but in the moment, I'm like, you know what? Hang up. That's a good idea. <laughs> I'll take the ride home. We'll figure this car thing out later. We get in the car with this family I don't talk to that much. And guess what? She brings up church and Jesus. She brings, she, she's not a Christian, as far as I can tell, but she brings up church and Jesus. And we have a talk about church and Jesus on the way there. And I get home, everything's fine, of course. But later, there's another follow-up yesterday about church. And so I'm telling my wife, you know, this is not the funnest situation for me to lock my keys in my car. But this is a God-ordered moment. Right? I would have never been in that car to talk about Jesus if I hadn't locked my keys in my car, which I don't do all the time. This was a script. I was supposed to happen. We think like this all the time, even though I didn't put God all in that story. He was all over it. He was ruling it. He was pushing it forward. He wrote the script. And you see that in Esther too. Look in chapter 1. Just think for a minute about the story. Think about the coincidences you see in Esther. First off, the king happens to throw this humongoid party, six months long, right? If it wasn't for that, there's no Jesus. He invites the commoners. That's highly unusual. He tells them to drink as they may. That's against tradition. In a drunken stupor, he could have ordered anything. He orders his wife to come through. 
to flaunt herself. What are the chances of that? Even more unlikely, she refuses. She could have been hanged, and she might have been hanged. We don't hear the whole story. Very unlikely that she refuses, and yet she does. This had to happen for Jesus to be born. Then what are the chances of one of his A's seizing this domestic dispute to make a law throughout the whole territory? That's pretty unlikely. And it continues throughout Esther. We didn't read it today, but later the king has to replace his queen. How is he going to do it? There are a lot of ways you can replace the queen. He does it through a beauty contest. And that's how Esther becomes in her place of influence. Not recommending that, by the way. Just describing, not prescribing. Now, how is the kingdom saved? I'll ruin it for you. One of the good guys, Mordecai, overhears a murder plot. How many murder plots have you overheard in your life? (laughs) None. It's unbelievable what's happening. Because God, he set the stage. The king happens to wake up with insomnia one night. And it's the night right before Mordecai is supposed to be executed. And he saves him. And then later, the chief bad guy, Haman, he happens to kind of fall on the couch where Esther is right when the king walks in the door. And the king supposes something and Haman's killed. And the people are saved. God is writing the script for all of history. And his script for you is your own rescue. Know that when you leave today. God's script for you is your own rescue. I know it looks bad. I know it looks bad today. I know you got problems. Can't even imagine what you have to go through. And yet, God is designing his rescue for you in Jesus Christ. And this is the best of news. It is the best of news that God ordered the universe such that he would send his son down, leaving authority to become fully human so that he could walk around and obey at every place that you could not. It is God's script that Jesus was to minister for three years and then be tortured and to die on the cross for your sins in a way that you could not. Because you're not God. Jesus is fully God. It's by God's design that Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan in a way that you never could. That's his script. And that is the good news for you today. You've got to hang on. Hang on this week. No, it's going to be tough, but God is writing this out. I bet something will happen today that you didn't know would happen. But God knew. Your life is not spiraling out of control. He has a plan to rescue his people. Your job is to trust him. You got the easy part, even though I know it's really hard. It's easier than his part. His part is to orchestrate all of history so that Jesus will come and he will reign and he will fix every single point that is broken. Let's pray together. Father, we pray to you because only you can fix things. We pray to you because only you're glorious enough to handle our prayers. We pray to you because of your beauty, 
and your righteousness shown in Jesus Christ. God help us. God save us. God rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, and from Satan himself. God, drunkenness is not right. Put it to death in Jesus. Misogyny should not be. End it in Jesus. Materialism grips my heart and our heart. Hanging on the cross with Jesus, God. We pray for your help and your deliverance in Jesus Christ together. Amen.